We're going to begin reading in verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to Jesus and pleaded with him to touch him. And taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village. And after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he was asking him, do you see anything? And he looked up and was saying, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. Then again, he laid his hands on his eyes and he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. And Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he was asking his disciples, saying to them, who do people say that I am? And they told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, but others, one of the prophets. And he continued questioning them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. I'm just going to say a quick prayer this morning. Father, I pray this morning that it is your words, not mine, that are heard. Pray, Lord, that it is your agenda, not mine, that is spoken. Father, I pray that you have tilled the soil of our hearts, that the Holy Spirit has has made us ready to receive this message. Father, I pray that it is just something that whets our appetite for your word, that we go forth this week, and we want to dig even deeper, we want to study even further, and Father, grow closer and closer to you in the image of your Son. In his name we pray, in the name of Jesus, our risen Savior, amen. Amen. Now, we've learned through this little mini-series here within the Gospel of Mark. Um, I don't know if that's me or why it keeps doing that. But uh, we've learned in our series that Christ gives us what we need to serve other people. Uh, he is, if we are to have the compassion of Christ we, that we need to serve, we also have to have the focus of Christ. But he's the only one who makes our focus clear. And our focus must be, first and foremost, on him, if it's to be made clear. If the church is to have the focus of Christ. You know, if we, if we go to love others and serve others, but we don't do it for the purpose of drawing them to Christ, we're no different than any social services organization. We're no different than any food pantry. If we go to, to serve people and we never give them the truth of Christ, we are actually doing them a great disservice. Because if we give them food, they'll just be hungry again. If we give them clothes, those clothes will wear out. But if we don't give them the gospel of Jesus Christ, the thing that will affect them for eternity, we failed in our mission and and how we are truly serving them. And today, if you take nothing else away from this message, it is my prayer you understand this. If our focus is not on Christ, then we have nothing to do with his compassionate provision. We may say we do. We may, we may try to be a part of the, the mission of Christ. But if we don't have Christ as the center of our vision, if our focus is not on Christ, we truly will have nothing to do with what he is about. And today, like I said, we're finishing this little mini-series, The Compassionate Provision of Christ. And truthfully, we could probably have spent two or three weeks longer on this section They say to be careful in your sermon preparation to not put everything you know into each sermon or everything you've studied into each sermon. And that's a a balancing act for each pastor, each preacher, because 
Sometimes you find some things that are just so good and, and you want to pack it all in and serve it up like a hot pizza on Sunday morning, but, but there are times you need to kind of have that balance. You don't want it to be so academic that it's over everybody's head. You don't want it to be so uh, applicational that it's, it's not something that has any academics to it at all. In fact, it becomes a, a motivational speech or a how-to talk. You don't want that. You want it to be a sermon. You want it to be something that's going to change lives and, and impact hearts. And so, like I said, that's kind of the balancing act here. But if I, when we, we have kind of a, a mixed bag of people who hear me preach every week. And so I try to have something for the mature believer and the immature believer, steak for the, the lifelong Christian and, and milk for the baby Christian. And if I just want to say this, if I ever say something and and you say, hey, that kind of went over my head, or I don't really understand that, or, or I disagree with that, just come and talk to me, please. Uh, I'd be happy to explain it further. I want to make sure everybody understands uh, what, what we're talking about and what we're preaching here. But I love what we've seen in the Gospel of Mark, even though it's the same Gospel, and we've been traveling through this for almost going on a year now. Uh, I think we started last August, so we're a month away from a year. And we're about halfway done. Uh, I think it's pretty incredible that each week we still have something fresh, something different, something powerful that we see within this gospel account. And today we see a blind man receive his sight. We see Peter finally confess Jesus as Christ. Up until this point, only demons have done that. And he's told them to be quiet. And so there's so much more in this, and we're just going to jump into the message. But I, I began last week's message by saying, we must see Christ for who he truly is. And this week I want to expand on that, reiterate that, and clarify that a little bit more. A partial version for, of Christ, of who he is, is not enough. If we only have a glimpse of him, and, and we don't try to understand or seek him out or, or grab who he truly is, that's just not good enough. And we see that play out in our passage, and you'll understand what I mean by that. Verse 22, it says, They came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to Jesus and pleaded with him to touch him. Mark is, in a sense, he's shifting gears on us here. If you remember last week, he kind of Jesus had been scolding the disciples in the boat. He'd been on the shores of Galilee and Capernaum, and he'd duked it out verbally with the Pharisees and the scribes. But now he's back in Bethsaida. Bethsaida, if you recall, that's the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And there's some confusion about this place. There were actually two Bethsaidas, if you recall. And back in chapter 6, this was possibly the intended spot, their intended destination, after Jesus had healed the 5,000. It says, immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side of Bethsaida, while he himself was sending the crowd away. Of course, it's... They're not going to make it to that Bethsaida, not that time. The wind and the waves will blow them off course, if you remember that story. But Jesus likes to go to these two areas called Bethsaida. They're where he gets away. He gets away from the scribes. He gets away from the Pharisees. And if you remember, that, that's what Luke actually had called the area where he fed the 5,000. So it's, like I said, it's confusing because there are two places with that destination. But it's believed this is the area where he actually fed the 5,000. If you remember when he went to feed the 5,000, he was wanting to get away with the disciples. So he's back in that region. 
Now, this story is going to begin a trend within the Gospel of Mark that we're going to see. People begin to observe this. Jesus had operated quite openly up until this point. When he would do a miracle, most of the time it was where everybody could see it. It was very public. But now, at this point, this is the last public miracle Jesus is going to do, at least chronologically. This is the last public miracle he does. Jesus is becoming more and more private in his ministry. In fact, even in this text, he's going to take the blind man outside of the village and tell him, don't go back. He's taking him away from the crowd. And this is, like I said, this is kind of beginning a second act in the Gospel of Mark. And he begins to move towards that third act, and that is where he will tread towards the cross. We call it his passion. Um, But the second act, his ministry goes private. And for now, once again, we're in Bethsaida. Jesus and his disciples, they've landed there. And another, another group comes to Jesus and they bring him a blind man. They come bearing the blind man. Pretty much every English translation says they brought the blind man to Jesus. But the actual word, the Greek word is phoronson. And this gives us a little hint as to the history of this man. It means they bore him. They were his crutches. This man was not used to being blind. Something has happened to him. And we'll see that flesh out as we go. But he's not going to find his own way to Jesus. The crowd will be who takes him to him. That's the severity of his vision being taken away. He's blind. He saw nothing. So the crowd has to lead him to Jesus. And they implore, they beg, they plead with Jesus to touch the man. Now, in some cases, if you recall, when the crowd asked Jesus to touch someone, it was merely to bless them. It was merely so they could feel human human touch, so they could be comforted. But the word used here is actually the Greek word, aptitai. And it means physical contact, yes. But really, if we study that, it means to kindle a fire, to bring light into darkness. In other words, all this man saw was darkness. And yet they're asking Jesus, will you bring light into his life? And I imagine Jesus was excited because this this is something Jesus does. This is something Jesus is. This man needed his eyes open because he saw nothing. And Jesus is the light that he needs. John tells us in John 1, 4 and 5, in him was life and the life was the light of men, the light of Shines in the darkness. The darkness did not comprehend it. Verse 10 of that chapter. And that he was in the world and the world was made through him. And the world did not know him. And in 1 John 1, 5. This is the message we've heard from him and announced to you that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. They came to the right person. But there's a very subtle acknowledgement here. That draws us back to the book of Genesis. When God said, let there be light. And there was light. This man's been living in darkness, not by his own choosing, but because of a physical ailment. And they bring him to Jesus because this is what God does. And they understand he is, if nothing else, acting on the side of God. This is not too big of a thing for Jesus, but it is his to do. It is his light to give, his miracle to perform. So the people come and they ask, And taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village. And after spitting on his eyes 
And laying his hands on him, he was asking him, do you see anything? Now the word taking here is, basically means Jesus caught him. Jesus became his crutch. Jesus became the one who was leading him, taking him, carrying him out of the way, away from the crowd, away from the town, away from the village. He is now being led by the Christ. He takes the man out of the village. Now Luke refers to Bethsaida as, as a city. And so you kind of might wonder if you are looking at a parallel passage or something, is it a village or is it a city? Well, the answer is truly it was both. At one point, Bethsaida was a small town, but the Philip the Tetrarch had invested a lot of Roman money into it. He'd built it up. He'd beautified it. He'd made it a, a Roman battalion, a fortified city, and it was becoming a, a bustling metropolis in Jesus' day. That's what the historian Josephus tells us. So Jesus takes him out of this town, and he gets him away from everyone. Why? Because he's getting more private in his ministry, more private with his miracles. In fact, Jesus is still technically in the Galilean region, and this will be his last miracle in that territory. So he takes this man out of town, and he spits in his eyes. That's disgusting. How many of you want to look at your neighbor and just spit all over him and say, hey, I want you to feel better. Don't do that. Please do not. Jackie, don't. Okay? Save that for home. <laughs> but Jesus does this. Now, Jesus has done something similar before with the, with the deaf man. We are familiar with that story. And for the deaf man, he saw the action of Jesus spitting so that he would know that Jesus was going to heal his mouth. In this case, he spits and he rubs the saliva on his eyes. The very subtle message is simply here, not that this is a step-by-step how-to-heal process or magical formula. It's nothing like that. The message is this man will feel the moisture. He will know after hearing the spit that the healing is going to come through Jesus. It's going to come from him. Of course, like I I did reference the man, you know, with the the mute uh, spitting. Um, I I lost my place in my notes whenever I looked at Jackie. I'm sorry. Uh, give me one second here. <laughs> anyway, this is done, so this man has some sense of what Jesus is doing. Uh, but then Jesus lays his hands on the man, and during that process, either either the, from the spit or the, the hands were not told, it's from Jesus, this man begins to be healed. And Jesus says, do you see anything? This is important. Verse 24, as he looked up, and was saying, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. Now, some translations will say, I see people. That's not true. The, the, the Greek is not gender neutral here. They see, he sees men. So what's this tell us? Jesus has taken him out of the village, and he's seeing the disciples standing behind Jesus. He sees men. He sees these 12 men, and they look to him like trees. Now, what does that tell us? This guy knew what trees look like. He's not always been blind. He knows what men look like. He knows what they should look like. But he also knows right now his vision's so blurry, they still look like trees. Now, something has happened to him to cause this blindness. Either he fought against the Romans or with the Romans, possibly. He'd spent some time fighting the barbarians up north, and he's lost his eyesight. Maybe he took a club to the head. 
Maybe he had some kind of accident. We're never told. But out of all of Jesus' miracles in all of the Gospels, this is the only one that ever happens in stages. And sometimes we, we read this, we hear this, and we think that that's the rule, not the exception to the rule. But it is done for a purpose. This is as much a healing as it is a lesson for those men who were just in the boat with Jesus. At one point, they, these men had boldly gotten out of their fishing boats and followed after Jesus with reckless abandon. They followed their teacher and they absorbed everything that was going on. They absorbed everything that he taught. But somewhere along the way, their hearts had become hardened. Somewhere along the way, they stopped understanding. Somewhere along the way, their vision had become blurry. Maybe they didn't like the fact that Jesus was telling them he was going to have to suffer and die, that eventually he'd be killed. Maybe they were getting impatient and they wanted this kingdom to arise that he'd been talking about. Maybe some of them, and we know at least one of them, was getting kind of upset. He wasn't getting rich off the whole thing. Maybe they were tired of constant travel. Maybe they weren't seeing their families as often as they'd like. In fact, Peter will kind of throw that in Jesus' face in a sense. He'll say in, in chapter 10, verse 28, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. The disciples have become so anxious, their vision has become blurred. And Mark says this man looked up. And that doesn't tell us much. If a blind man looks up, you don't know if he's healed, you don't know if he can see. But the Greek implies he looks up in order to see. It's the word anablepsis. It literally means he looks up in order to receive sight or to see something. It's the same word Mark will use in chapter 10 when describing blind Bartimaeus. Jesus said to him, go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight. When he says he regained his sight, it's the word anablepsis. He looks up to see. But his sight was not completely restored. And this has caused confusion. In fact, there's probably a dozen explanations as to why Jesus heals this man in stages. And I think it's very clear that it's meant to be done as a lesson for his disciples and for us. You read other authors, some reformers like John Calvin, for instance. He says, well, and I'm just paraphrasing his quote here. He says, well, he's Jesus. He can heal however he wants. He's God. He can do it however he sees fit. And that's true. You know, just because he's John Calvin, the inventor of Calvinism. By the way, if Calvin was around today, he wouldn't be a Calvinist. But anyway, uh, just because it's somebody we may not always agree with doesn't mean he's wrong here. So it's fair. It's It's a decent assessment. But the truth is, if we look at the text and we look at the context, what follows and what precedes, the disciples had been given plenty of evidence. The disciples had should have been able to see, but they remained blind as to who Christ was. They had a blurred vision of what this man, Jesus of Nazareth, was or what he was capable of or who he was. This man that Jesus was healing at some point had become blind. Now his vision's blurry. It's better. He has a leg up on where he was. Sure, Jesus could have just said, well, you're better than you were. I'm gonna leave you here. Jesus doesn't do that. Just with the same, the same is true with the disciples. Their focus is still blurred. Their sin, whether it was frustration, hard-heartedness, impatience, greed, 
whatever it was, it had blinded them to who Christ was. It had inhibited their ability to trust him completely. And the same is true with us. If our focus on Christ becomes, un, in, I'm sorry, inhibited, if we do not keep our eyes on Christ, if we do not lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and run with endurance the race set before us, then we do not deserve the prize. We cannot be shocked when we miss the point of things. We miss who he truly is, what he's done for us, and, and what he will do in us and what he will do through us. I've said this the past couple of weeks, that it's at the cross we see his compassionate provision reach its apex, reach its greatest point. But if our focus is not on Christ, we have nothing to do with that. We miss, our, we miss the point. We lose our focus. His grace, his mercy, we miss it because he's not our focus. So our vision must be made clear. We see this with the blind man in verse 25. Then again, he laid his hands on his eyes and he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. Now previously, Mark says he laid his hands on the man. He didn't tell us where. This time he expressly says he puts his hands on his eyes. Jesus has been doing this with the disciples. He's getting to the root of the issue. The cause of the problem. In their case, it was their heart. In this man's case, it was his eyes. That's why Jesus puts his hands on his eyes. One pastor I wrote broke this down, or I read broke, broke this down beautifully. He said, three words are used here. Three verbs are used to describe what happened to this man after the second touch. He touched his eyes again. This is the only place in the four gospels where Jesus did a healing in two touches. And every verb that could, every compound verb that could be used to describe seeing is used in this passage, about five of them. It's all about sight from every aspect. And the two words for eyes are used. He spit on his eyes. Mark uses one word. The second time he laid his hands on his eyes, he uses another word. The first word is omata. The second is ophthalmos. It's from where we get the word ophthalmology. There's a richness here. Every verb and every word for I is used. And the second touch brings a clinical healing in the most magnanimous way when it says, and he looked intently. And that's diablepo. Literally, to see through, penetrating sight. The fog is gone. To look through, to see accurately would be another way to understand it. This is the beauty of Jesus' touch, isn't it? that he heals completely, that he heals thoroughly. Jesus does nothing halfway. I've said this, and this is the only time this happens in the, in the Gospels where Jesus doesn't heal completely on the spot. Now, he could have, like I said, asked the man, you see something? Okay, well, we're done here. You know, it's good enough. He could have done that. Nobody would blame Jesus for that. They don't. Thousands of years later, we'd say, well, he has his purpose. He could have, that man could have, as some pastors have taught, said, well, this guy doesn't have enough faith. He doesn't have what it takes to get a full healing. I don't see that in the text. I don't see that anywhere in Scripture. Jesus could, as some have suggested, just said, well, I'm not able to finish healing you. My power is limited. But he doesn't do that. No, Jesus heals completely. The reason for doing it in the stages, I think, like I said, is 
is clear when we understand what's happened before this passage and what follows. Jesus had lectured his disciples not that long ago, just last week in our text. He said, having eyes to see, do you not see? Having ears to hear, do you not hear? And if you recall, those words would have stung. They would have cut the disciples to the core. And the problem is so many times we see that as a bad thing. We see that as a thing we should flinch at. Getting cut to the heart is not a bad thing if it's the word of God that does it. Remember when Peter teaches in the book of Acts in chapter two, when the men of Jerusalem hear his sermon, what happens? When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized. If the word of God pierces us to the heart, if it challenges us, if it, in a sense, smacks us, that's a good thing. Because God is disciplining us. This is what a father who loves us does. Now, I'm not saying go smack your kid. Okay, that's not what I mean. I'm saying that a good father disciplines his children, and that's what God does. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, Proverbs tells us, even as a father corrects a son in whom he delights. Hebrews 12, 6 reminds us, for those whom the Lord loves, he, 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 I can't read today, sorry. He disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. The disciples had received that. They'd received that discipline back in the boat. All discipline for the moment does not seem joyful. Yet those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And the disciples see this man being healed and they see the completion of it and things begin to click in their mind. We've been like this blind man. We got, to, we got close to Jesus. We could see partially, but we're not seeing completely. Verse uh, 35 in chapter seven, Jesus healed the deaf man. His ears were opened and the impediment of his tongue was removed. He began speaking plainly. Well, now the, the crowd brings a man to Jesus and he begins to see everything clearly. Verse 26, he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Again, I want to reiterate, Jesus' ministry is going private. He's trying to keep the news of himself from spreading because the news that will spread from this point forward would just be half the story. Back in chapter six, Jesus heals the deaf man. He took him aside from the crowd by himself. And then he goes back and he tells him, but don't tell anybody. When he heals the blind man, he takes him outside of the village away from everybody. And you remember the Greek word, it's epilobominos. He took him so the crowd didn't have to. Jesus led this man away from the crowd. They no longer have any purpose in this man's life. He's able to walk on his own accord. He doesn't need to be carried along by them. He doesn't need the crowd to be his crutch. So Jesus sends him on his way home. And Jesus has tried to do this throughout his ministry. He tried to keep people kind of quiet. If you remember back in chapter one with the leper, he said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer uh, an offer for your cleansing, what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Yet even then, what happened? The guy goes out and tells everybody to the point Jesus cannot even go into the, the villages. He has to stay out in the, the desolate places. We have to remember that in Mark's account, Calvary is coming. The cross is looming. Jesus wants less and less attention. 
He wants to prepare his disciples who are now finally starting to get it, starting to understand. And once the story is completed, once the cross is stained with the blood of the lamb and the tomb has been empty, we're going to find that it's taken the healing of a deaf man, the healing of a blind man, the feeding of 5,000, 4,000, and if you remember, it's closer to probably 40,000 people total, the calming of storms, all the combined miracles of Jesus' ministry so far for the disciples to finally have a clear vision of Christ, who he truly is. And once we understand who he truly is, it's not enough that we just understand that. We must confess that belief. That's what the Bible tells us in verse 27. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he was asking his disciples, saying to them, who do people say that I am? Well, Mark shifts the scene again, doesn't he? Now they're moving. Now they're on to Caesarea Philippi, which this is kind of an interesting place. This this was an area normally known as Panius or Panion. It had been named after the Greek god Pan. It's where we get our English word panic. He was also a god of fertility, but also uh, of, of fear. And it was alluded to in Greek works that he treated humanity like they were cattle, like they were just to be slaughtered. He was a God of shepherds. But that's all in the past. Now it's a place named in honor of Augustine. I'm sorry, Caesar Augustus. I get my Augusts mixed up. Uh, Sorry. It's a place of emperor worship. In fact, this is the place of the imperial cult. That's the religion of the region. Herod the Great had built a great marble temple to Caesar Augustus in this this town. And this is where Jesus begins to talk to his disciples. This is where he begins to have this conversation. The first time he's actually talked to the disciples since they were in the boat together, since that harsh rebuke. And he begins by simply asking, who do people say that I am? Notice he doesn't single out one of the disciples. He asks all of them. He wants them all to think about it. He's not asking them their opinion. That will come later. He wants the disciples to reflect on what other people have said and what do they think about it. Now this is going to reflect back, this is going to point us back to Mark chapter 6 when King Herod hears about Jesus for his name had become well known and people were saying John the Baptist has risen from the dead And that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying he's Elijah, and others are saying he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. Jesus is not asking this question out of ignorance. He knows what the people say about him. He likely hears the crowds mutter as he walks through the cities. He hears the rumors. As he would heal people, they might even call him, thanks, John. You know, they might have said, thank you, Elijah. We're never told that. We're never told if he bothered to correct any of those people. But the disciples had obviously heard these rumors too, and their reply testifies to this. They told him, saying, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, but others one of the prophets. Well, let's work this backwards for a moment. Was Jesus a prophet? Yeah. He was the one that had been prophesied about in the law. Yahweh, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses said, from among you, from your brothers, you shall listen to him. God confirms this a few verses later when he, he says, I will raise up a prophet from among their brothers like you, 
and I'll put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Israel has been waiting on that prophet for a long time. Now, yes, Samuel, other prophets, Jonah, some of those have risen up. They've spoke, Isaiah, Jeremiah. But this is not, they understand that's not the prophet who is to come. They understand this to be the Messiah. The problem is they wanted that prophet, that Messiah, to conform to their vision of what that position would look like, of what that person would look like. They'd stop at nothing when they have found him. They'll stop at nothing to make him their king. We see this in John 6. The people saw the sign which he'd done. They were saying, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So Jesus, knowing that they were going to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. The idea of Elijah is not too far off either. If you remember, there was a prophecy about Elijah coming. You might say they're getting warmer in their guess. When John the Baptist was prophesied about, Elijah is referred to. Jesus mentions this in Matthew 11 when he talks to the disciples. He says, if you're willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. But John said in the Gospel of John, John the Baptist said, they asked him, are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So this gets confusing to us, right? Who gets to be Elijah? Well, Elijah is Elijah. The the metaphor that's being used here of John the Baptist also applies to Jesus as well. Jesus says in Matthew 17, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. So if Elijah already came, yes, historically, First and Second Kings, Elijah came. But then John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah. If you remember, he even dressed like Elijah. But now the greatest prophet, the prophet, the Elijah who will make all things new. That's what Revelation tells us. He who sits on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. We will restore all things. That's Jesus. So the metaphor applies to both in that sense. The people aren't entirely wrong, but they get a blurry focus of who Jesus was. It's safe to say Jesus was not his cousin, John the Baptist, right? We all kind of understand that. What this truly tells us is that the people in Jesus' day, they wanted Jesus to be anything but who he really was. They wanted him to be the prophet king. They were happy with him being a resurrected John the Baptist. They were happy with him being Elijah. But they didn't want Jesus to be that suffering servant of Isaiah. They didn't want him to be that one who would call them to repent. So he turns to the disciples and he says, okay, guys, who do you think I am? Verse 29, and he continued questioning them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this conversation. It's a big deal. The disciples finally get it. The gears have clicked into place. Now Luke notes something slightly different from Matthew and Mark, that this occurs after Jesus had been praying 
In fact, pay attention to Mark's wording here. It happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he questioned them saying, who do the crowds say that I am? Who was praying with Jesus? Nobody. He prayed alone. You want to know why it took the disciples so long to figure things out? It's because somewhere along the line, they went from, Lord, teach us to pray, to not praying themselves. In fact, on the night he's betrayed, they're going to fall asleep while he's forced to pray alone. Prayer is such a key for the individual believer and for the church because that is what sets our focus on who he is. We pray in alignment with his word. You want to know why why churches close, why they die, why churches die? It's because they stop praying. You want to know why pastors fall and evangelists fail? It's because they stop praying. You want to know why Christians fade and never see their victory? It's because they stop praying, because they can't see Christ, because they've stopped communicating with him. Prayer may not change my circumstances, but it will change me. Prayer may not bring vengeance on my enemy, but it may bring humility to my heart. Prayer may not give me a new body, a new back, a new knee, but it will revive my spirit within me. Prayer may not pay all my bills. It may not get me a new car. It may not get me a new house, but I have a home waiting on me from when I get to the destination of my prayer. He's gone to prepare a place for us. You see, prayer is key. And we're forgetting something. Jesus is very aware of it. He's been trying to get away with his disciples for so long. He wants them to understand this, who he is. He wants to understand the power of prayer. He models prayer for them all the time. If you read through the Gospels, you will see constant times Jesus prays and the disciples don't. You've heard me say this a few times. You've heard me preach this. He wants the company retreat. He wants time to unpack with them. All the way from the beginning of chapter 6, when they came back, they were so happy, they were content with themselves, what they'd done. The apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all they had done, all they had taught. And he said, eight months in Gentile territory, teaching them, trying to talk to them, trying to explain to them, and they're still not getting it. So they, they get in the boat, they go back home, and the Pharisees are there. And they get the Pharisees want to just debate and argue. Jesus leaves the discussion. They get in the boat. One loaf of bread is there. And so Jesus starts talking about leaven, and the disciples' vision is so blurred, they get focused on the one piece of bread rather than the bread of life in the boat with them, and he begins to scold them for it because they've lost their focus. They've lost their communication. They're not hearing him. They're not praying with him. And these things start to fit together. So Peter speaks up finally. He understands. He says, you are the Christ. The Greek word Christos means you're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. Finally, they understand. Finally, they can speak freely. And just like the mute man a few weeks ago, they could finally talk. But what's Jesus do? He tells them, tell no one about him. And he warned them to tell no one about him. The greatest news on earth, the Messiah has come. Christ is here, and now we've got to be quiet about it. 
Because if people found out, they'd do one of two things. They'd try and forcefully raise him up as king, which we saw in John 6. Or they'd have him stoned as an apostate, tried and crucified as a criminal, which we'll see happen. Comes back to the C.S. Lewis trilemma debate. Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. So many times we want to brush him off as a good teacher, a good moral instructor. Even Christians will say, I don't know if I agree with Jesus. How can you call yourself a Christian and not agree with Jesus? He's more than just a religious leader or a good teacher or a nice man in history. C.S. Lewis said it this way, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend it. The disciples recognize this is more than a teacher. He is the teacher. He is the Messiah. Now imagine you're one of those 12 men and they figure it out and tears begin to flow and you begin to rejoice and you begin to worship him for who he is. And he says, knock it off. Don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody just yet. Might have been more harsh, more painful to hear than what they'd been told in the boat previous conversation. Some of us might be told, don't talk about Jesus, and we say, done. I don't do it already, right? I don't, I don't talk about Jesus. But that's the irony of Mark, whether he intended it to play out that way or not. The disciples finally figure out who Jesus is, and they can't tell anybody. They've cracked the code. They've solved the mystery, and they can't even go home and tell their wives. In the American church, here's the Here's the rub. We think we do have Jesus figured out. We think we do have the perfect vision of him, but we can't be bothered to talk about him. It's not enough to know who Jesus is. We must tell others about him as well. We must confess the Christ. Paul writes that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes leading to righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, leading to salvation. Will you continue to confess Christ as Lord in your life? That's the question. I'm going to move to close in just a moment. We've ended services recently without much of an altar call, just a challenge. And today I challenge you to find a place to pray. It can be at the front, it can be where you are. Maybe it's a place not just to pray, but to plea. Is Christ truly Lord of your life? Is he truly the focus of your life? Or do you get bogged down by work, by friends, by family, by things? I alluded to this earlier. The greatest act of compassionate provision that Christ did was when he put himself upon a cross. He died a criminal's death. 
even though he committed no crime. In this symbolic act, he took upon himself all the sins of mankind, your sin, my sin. His blood was shed on that cross as a sacrifice. The only thing, the only one, holy enough, pure enough, righteous enough to be such a sacrifice. He was it. He bled. He died. He was buried. But because Jesus is the Son of God, the only begotten of the Father, alike in likeness, God incarnate, he rose from the grave on the third day through his resurrection. Those who believe in him, those who confess him as their Lord need not fear death. One day we may die, but because of who Christ is and who Christ has been in your life, you will also rise from the grave into eternity if he's Lord of your life. And if he's Lord of your life and, and you struggle to share him, you struggle to talk about him, you struggle to give others Jesus and tell him what he's done for your life, then I would challenge you in your time of prayer, pray for boldness. Pray for more of the Holy Spirit. Pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. If you've never received that with the evidence of speaking in tongues, we'd be happy to pray for you to receive that. Because that's part of that, is being his witness when the Spirit comes upon us. I'm going to ask everyone to stand. We're going to pray a prayer of dismissal. And again, I challenge you to find a place to pray this morning. Father God, this morning we just, we know there's a lot going on in the world around us. We know this week is Independence Day and we celebrate a time where we, we said we, we don't obey tyrants. But Lord, the Christian, the follower of Jesus, recognizes his dependence on you. We are not independent from Christ. Your word says one day every knee will bow, every tongue confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. We either do it here or we will do it later. Then, in the time of judgment. But you are Lord. So Father, today I pray whether we stay, whether we go, wherever we, that we take time and we pray for boldness to share you. Boldness to pass along who Christ truly is. Lord, I pray today for those who don't know you, that they receive that compassionate provision from the cross. They say, Lord, be king of my life. And Lord, I pray for those of us who struggle to speak up, those of us who live in fear. Pray that not be so. Pray for boldness. I pray for the empowerment of your Holy Spirit. Father, go with us that we may go in power. That we may go in strength and in courage to proclaim your word, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.